Well, good morning, Vale. How are we doing? Hey, it's so good to be with everyone uh, this morning. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Tony Calabrese, and uh, my wife and I lived in the Bloomington Normal area uh, for about 10, 10 and a half years, and uh, we currently live in the Nashville area. We pastor Church of the City in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and uh, it's so good to be back with you. Uh, I was here uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, love, love, love this place, love this church, And I truly believe that the latter years are going to be greater than the former in this place. Uh, I just remember when I was on staff, uh, we were at the Morrissey Drive location. Any Morrissey Drive folk, people in the room? Yes, I see y'all. And um, so it's really cool just to see what God has been doing. Uh, Excited to be here with you this morning. We're continuing uh, in our series in the Ten Commandments. And as I was preparing for uh, today's message, I was reminded of a book Uh, that I read um, years ago. Uh, It's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, The author is Neil Postman. And this book was written in the 80s. And it was kind of a prophetic book back then for its time. Uh, Neil Postman, this book um, was all about the effect of television and entertainment and the underpinnings of technology and the effect it has on culture. Again, this was written in the 80s, and he predicted then that the two areas of society that would be most damaged by the TV and entertainment was politics and religion. And in politics, he predicted that TV celebrities would replace intelligent, wise leaders. Back in the 80s, y'all. And he predicted that depth in discipleship would give way to superficial feel-good spirituality. And in his book, he, if there's a a phrase or a quote that I could pull out of that book that kind of uh, in summation gives the the, the heart of the book, it's, it's this. He says this about distraction. He says, the dictatorship of our day is distraction. And that was back in the 80s. And I would argue today for us living in Bloomington Normal in 21st century North America that we might be the most distracted generation that has ever graced this planet. I share distraction with us today because when we come to our text in Exodus chapter 20 verse 17, we'll find that the people who were receiving the commandment in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20 became a distracted people. They became a distracted people. It's all about distractions in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. The people of God missed the Father's invitation. They missed the moment of connection with the Father and intimacy with the Father. Their response did not match the Father's invitation. They got distracted, and the reality is is if, if we can level the playing field today, everybody, there are things in this world that we covet that kind of takes our eyes off the prize, that we become distracted about the things in this world that takes our eyes off of the invitation off the Father's heart. They distract us from the Father's love, from the Father's face. There's things that become distractions where we look at them and we see them and then we begin to long for the thing that we're looking after and we begin, end up missing the intention of the Father. And so in a world 
in a culture that is dominated by coveting something else. God, everybody, there's an invitation on the table to free us. Here's where we're going today. Here's, here's if I want to point us to the, the liberty and the freedom that this principle that we're going to see in this last commandment, it's this, is that free people are joyfully content. Matter of fact, if you can do that, why don't you just tell your neighbor, say, free people are joyfully content. Go ahead and tell them. And the other person that you don't know, the JV team person, go ahead and tell them, free people are joyfully content. And I share that with us because enslaved people, bound people, are chained and tethered to a covetous heart. Let's all stand up together, everybody. Let's read our text in honor of God's word. I love doing this when we preach. It's a posture of readiness. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're online, say, I'm there. Go ahead and type in the chat, say, I'm there. Let's uh, give some love to those that are watching online today, Vail Church, Vail Online. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, hear the word of our Father. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Uh, your word that is truth. Uh, I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would illuminate something in us. God, your word is a, is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Would you light the way into our hearts today? And I pray, God, that you would shine a, a, a massive light, shine it into our hearts, into the deepest places of our hearts, that maybe we, we don't want you to go there, but God, we ask you would do that, you would shine a light, and that you would begin to renovate in our hearts setting things in order. And so God, I pray that you'd give me precision and accuracy. I pray that your word that is seed would fall on good soil today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, I kind of wanted to really build some context to the Ten Commandments. And and everybody, I I hope and pray that you hear this. Um, before the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, I think the, the first two verses are pivotal and foundational for you and I as believers in Jesus to really catch the heart of God because the reality is, is the Ten Commandments, if they're rules, uh, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Like if I just went up to your kids and gave them a bunch of rules, they'd be like, who's this guy? Who, who's this guy? I don't know who this is. There's, there's no relationship. And so what we find in Exodus chapter 20, the first two verses, we, we find that uh, th- these commandments are given to the people of God after they leave Egypt. We just sing about it, right? God gives the commandments to the people of God when they're freed people. Uh, it's on the other sl- side of them being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years under the rule of Pharaoh. God sends a redeemer and a rescuer. His name's Moses. He frees them. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments, and that's important because he doesn't say, while they're in Egypt, you have to live out all these commands, you have to obey them, then I'll fully and freely liberate you. 
The backdrop of the Ten Commandments, everybody, is laced with grace. Check it. Verse 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. And, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. Meaning I'm your God. You are my people and I am your God. There's ownership there. There's relationship there. There's connection. And, and what is it about this God? What are the attributes of him? Well, he's a God who frees people. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So it's out of God's kindness and his grace and his mercy that he frees people after 400 years of being bound. And when God gives the commandments, everybody, there's really two main reasons that he gives us these commands. Let's catch this before we get into verse 17. He gives them these commands for two reasons. One is because he wants to shape a new identity in the people of God. He's saying, you've been shaped and molded for 400 years. All you know is slavery, but I have come to free you. I'm making you into a new people, a new identity, and, and you are to enter into the newness of what I'm doing because the reality is God could get the people out of Egypt, but how many know it's another thing to get Egypt out of the people? And so he gives them the commands because, hey, everybody, this is what it looks like to be free. The second reason he gives the commands, one is identity. The second one is mission. Well, what do you mean by that? He says that it's like through your, this new identity, you're to let the world know what God is like. Therefore, you are to do things differently than the surrounding world. That, that you are to be set apart. Bless you. Bless you. Uh, you're to be set apart. Uh, you know what that means? Uh, that means that that was true for God's people then. Look up here, everybody. It's true for God's people today. Yes. That you are to let the surrounding world know who God is and who God is like. Which means we are to live differently than the world. Our mission is to show what God is like. That's the call for us today. Because the reality is, God says, you shall rest because the world doesn't know how to rest. Or you shall live in covenant loyalty to one true God because the world has many. Or you shall keep one wife or one husband because the world commits adultery. And so we get to the 10th and final commandment, not, not the last part of the series, but, but I'm preaching from the 10th commandment today. And it's the last commandment, and I think this last commandment, God saved this one for the last one because I think he did it on purpose. Some interesting things to note about this last commandment. A couple observations. One is that every command except for the first one and the last one you could argue is observable with the eye. The second through the ninth commandment, you can see, for example, and know when someone commits adultery. Or you can see when someone's not rested. Nobody in this room, by the way, today. Y'all look great. Rested on a Sunday morning. You can see and know when someone lies. It's observable with the eye. But the first commandment and the last commandment of coveting, it's really only something between you and God. Because the first and last commandment go at the desire level. If we would say and, and, and maybe theme it this way, the first commandment is all about loving God and loving God solely. And the last commandment, do not covet. But everything in the middle, verses two through nine, is all action-based. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. 
But the beginning and the end, the bookend of these commandments is, is all about our heart. It's interesting because if you, if you truly and genuinely and authentically love God and are fully satisfied in him, not wanting something that's not yours, you wouldn't want to lie or commit adultery or steal. It's an interesting bookend that solves so much. And so what is coveting? What does that mean? Well, here's what it is. Coveting is having an intense desire for something that someone else has, which leads to an, an intense pursuit of it. It's, it's where we become distracted, where we look at something and we see it and we begin to long after what we look at. Covening is this, everybody. It's an unchecked, unchecked and unhealthy desire that leads to distraction that ends with destruction. That's what coveting is. It's an interior reality that expresses it, its, 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 its way externally. The fruit of it is, will eventually come out. See, coveting is, is not so much saying, I want that. It's I want what you have. That's what coveting is. The word covet that's used in verse 17, the root word in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, is actually used in the book of Genesis for the desiring of the forbidden fruit. The original sin in the Garden of Eden was the sin of coveting. Listen, everybody, Adam and Eve in the garden, in Genesis chapter one and Genesis two, had everything. Genesis one is filled with a flurry of activity and everything that God makes is good. And you turn the page to Genesis chapter two and we see this garden, the description of the Garden of Eden, in verses 8 through 14, it describes it, and it says in verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And a few verses later, you see that man, humanity, gets to play a role in the story of God by naming the animals. A squirrel? Like the, the, the animals appear and, and God gives Adam the freedom and the liberty to, to say cow and, 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 and bird and it's interesting the role that, that God's people play in the story of God, but it's, it's interesting that during that time in the garden, Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the day, God is with them. He was close, there was proximity, there was no sin, no separation. They had all the food at their disposal. I mean, could you imagine the smells and the beauty and the taste living in Genesis chapter one and two in the garden. I mean, everything that they could want was in the environment. And if you would have asked Adam back then, Adam, how are things? You know what he would have said? Good, and meant it. Like, Adam, how are things? He would have been like, bueno. It's good, because that's all he knew, because he had everything at his disposal. Pets galore, waterfront property, organic vegetables, non-GMO stuff, I mean organic sugar, he had it all. Everything was awesome, but in the perfection of Eden, man was distracted and took his eyes off the Father and the gifts of the Father. Something else happened because he wanted something else. They had everything they, they wanted. It was at their disposal, but when you have a heart, that's consumed with coveting, no amount of anything good is good enough, and you enter into dangerous territory. God says you can have everything, but that one over there, that's mine. Any tree, anything here is yours, but that one over there is mine. 
And you know, you know what the temptation was? The temptation from the enemy was for them to covet the one thing that they didn't have. It says this, the enemy begins to tell half-truths. The enemy can't, the, the enemy can't really create, so he corrupts. And notice what he says here, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, the eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, this is an age-old problem. Coveting didn't start with lifestyles of the rich and famous. Coveting didn't start with IG highlight reels. Uh, coveting didn't start with uh, HGTV. Any HGTV fans in the room? That's, that's our house. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the entire HGTV network is built on coveting because it's like MTV Cribs, but for people with tools and a little bit of disposable income. It, it's like MTV Cribs, but... But you know on MTV Cribs, I could never afford that. But with HGTV, it's like, here's all the things your house could be if your husband was a little bit handy. <laughs> the reality is, is that you and I live in a coveting world. Now, it's interesting that when we think of the last commandment, we just think, thou shalt not covet. But often we miss the description of what else is mentioned the specificity that happens in verse 17. Let's look at it one more time. It specifies, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Let's put that back up. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So we have neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, neighbor's servant, and ox. And what this commandment addresses so what do we struggle with when it comes to coveting? What's, what are we to be careful of? It's what we have, uh, what we do, and who you are connected to. Kind of has a little rhyme to it. Uh, what we have, say what we have, what we do, and who we are connected to. What we have, what we do, and who we are connected to. That's all what verse 17 is addressing. So what we have is all about our possessions. What we do is all about our work and our productivity, one's livelihood, our jobs. And then who you are connected to, that could be extended to any kind of relationship. Now, we, you and I don't have oxes or donkeys, but yet this is very relatable to us because coveting can happen, everybody, for us. Just to make it plain and real simple, uh, we covet someone else's job. And so we, we start making calculations that, oh, this person has this, so, and they do this, so they might have this kind of salary. And then you start feeling a certain way about yourself based off of what someone else has. Like, I, I know what it's like to, to covet, my family and I, we lived, after we moved uh, from Bloomington, Illinois, we lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan for about five and a half years, and then we moved to Nashville, Tennessee to plant a church in 2018. And when we moved to the Nashville area, uh, there was kind of a significant cost of in, uh, increase living from Kalamazoo and moving and living in uh, the Nashville area. 
And when we got there, the county that we were living in uh, was in the top 20 wealthiest counties in America. Or let's just say um, what they call houses aren't what we call houses in the Midwest. Uh, These houses were monstrosity houses. And, And to be honest with you, I would walk through some of these homes and I was, as I would walk in some of these homes, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's like in my house, it's like kitchen, and then you take one step, and then it's like living room. But for them, it's like kitchen, and then you take, you know, like a half mile walk to get to the living room to the kitchen. And if I could be really honest with you, there's something that started on the inside of me where I was like, I want this. No, no, I want this house. And I'd walk through the backyard. And if you're a man in here and you love to grill outside, uh, multiple grills with multiple different tools, you're just like, I want that one. And there's something on the inside of me that started to rise up. Uh, We were on the the market for about a year and a half looking for a home because we've rented since we've lived in the Nashville area. And for whatever reason, by God's sovereign hand, Everyone who was living in California the past three or four years felt it appropriate to all move to Middle Tennessee. And so these people would come to the offer table to buy a home with cash. Y'all, I couldn't touch that. And so all of a sudden, I started to covet what those other people were doing. There's an important difference and distinction between admiring and coveting. You can admire something You can look at someone else's house or someone else's kids and maybe admire it. And you might see someone else's marriage and be like, man, you know what? I desire that with my spouse. But but we have to be careful with our desires. Our desires should be checked. The, the, The writer James says that it's desire that leads to sin, which means we need to be careful to check our desires. See, the thing with our desires, they're often a barometer for our appetite. Like, do your, let me ask this question, do your regular desires line up with God's desires? Desires are not evil, but you know that you've crossed the line with coveting when an intense longing leads to a greater level of dissatisfaction and disconnection with what you have. Here's why coveting is so dangerous, because coveting might be the foundation of violating the other nine commandments. Coveting, you could argue, is the gateway to violating the other nine. Because when you covet the divine to be like God, you violate the first commandment. You try to be your own God. When you covet an unhealthy sense of intimacy, you'll violate the seventh commandment, which says do not commit adultery. When you covet prosperity, you'll violate the eighth commandment, which says do not steal. So this tenth commandment, This last one is the most insidious, it's the most maybe imperceptible, the hardest to see, and and yet it might be the gateway to violating the other nine. This is why it's so dangerous, because you and I can look great on the outside, you can look fantastic, but on the inside, you look like this. (laughs) Y'all know who this is? Any Lord of the Ring fans, if you've read the book or you've watched uh, the movie? That's Gollum, and over the course of the story, he gets a hold of the ring of power, and it does all these magical things, and he wasn't always like that. He was Smeagol, if you know the story. 
So the ring kind of prolongs his life, but then in the process, he loses the ring, and, and he begins to obsess over it, and he loses his mind, and he goes to this extreme measure. He can't get it back. He covets it. it it's my precious. It's my, I want it. It's mine. My, my precious. But the reality is we can look good on the outside, but everybody, for some of us, we can look like this on the inside when our desires aren't checked. Because on the inside, we're, we're coveting. And if we are coveting something, and if it's getting at the desire, we have to be careful because it can damage our souls. And when it damages our souls, we begin making bad decisions that hurt other people. We write checks we can't cash. We end up buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. Jesus even said this. You're just like, well, this is the Ten Commandments and that's Old Covenant. That's cool. Let's go over to the New Testament. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this in the book of Luke. He says, and he said to them, take heed and beware. This is from the mouth of Jesus Christ the Lord. Beware of what? of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. So Jesus says, beware. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, there's our word, or an idolater or a reviler and a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Don't even come near people who are, who, who are, who are covetous people, lest you become like them. And Colossians 3, 5, y'all. Put to death. Kill it. Get rid of it. Therefore, what is earthly in, notice, in you, in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Watch this, y'all. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So there's layers and shrapnel that go deeper with the sin of covetousness. Why is it idolatry? Because you're putting someone or something above God. That thing or that person has now become an idol in our life, and what happens is you'll eventually exchange that for God. Man, if I could have that person's spouse, if I could have that person's job, I'll do anything to get it. If I could have that neighborhood, if I can live in it, I'll give anything to have it. So here's the deal, everybody. There has to be a better way, and I have good news for us, everybody. I have good news this morning. The good news is that God wants to make you and I free and desire to free us from the need to prove ourselves, from the need of making something of ourselves, from the need of establishing ourselves, from the need to be seen. The good news of salvation is that God and Jesus Christ doesn't want to just save you from outside forces, but he wants to save you from the enemy within. That was a great place for a name, and y'all can talk back to me at the nine o'clock at Vail Church. He wants to save us from what lies beneath. There's an enemy, but there's an, there's an enemy in me. And he wants to free us from that. That's the beauty of the gospel. So the gospel is the rescue rope that delivers us up and out of the covetous life because God is not just after behavior modification. He's after heart transformation. God doesn't want to just change the fruit. He wants to address the root, which is our very heart. And so this is where joyful contentment comes in. What's the remedy to covetousness? It's contentment. And I'd be a bad preacher to say, all right, guys, let's just be content. How do we do that? I want to give you three questions before I leave you today. 
if you're like me and you start to covet that house, and, and some of us who have kids in the room, uh, sometimes you'll move from, oh, I wish my kids would be like that, to like, I want, my, I want that kid right there. The one who listens and obeys, like, I want that kid. Like, can I adopt him? Uh, there's three questions I want you to ask to, to filter through your desires. And I, I pray that this would be helpful for us. Can I give them to you today? Y'all can talk about, can I give you these three questions today? Here's the first one. One, what is the story you're telling yourself? Because it's very likely that there's a story that all of us tell ourselves when we begin to covet certain things and there's a blank space in the middle and the story goes like this, I am not blank enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not blessed enough. I'm not good enough. What is the story you're telling yourself whenever you see something that you yourself don't have? What is that story you're telling yourself? And if you ask this question, I believe the Holy Spirit, by his grace and his power, will begin to help us identify the lie in the story. And we begin to dispel these things because when you and I look at someone else's house or their car, or their bank account, their spouse, whatever, their spouse, whatever it is, and you begin to identify what is the story you're telling yourself and you name the lie, when you name the lie, you begin to realize that whatever lie you believe, you actually try to medicate that lie. I am not blank enough, therefore I need that or I need to do that. So, so what's the story you're telling yourself? Here's the second question. What's the illusion you're believing? This question helps us identify so much because what happens is, is that everybody, we make decisions based on what we see on the surface, but we actually don't see the cost or the implications associated with what other people have. Here's what I mean. We see someone else's nice car, but we don't see the debt that they went into to get that car. Or the monstrosity of the house. We don't see that it came at a cost that that person's only home one day a week to afford that massive home with a house full of kids. Uh, we see someone else's life on social media that we cover, but we don't see the depression that it takes to sustain that type of social limelight. Because we see everyone else's highlights, we don't see the lowlights though. No, not everyone that has nicer things than us is, is miserable, but the reality is we don't see the bigger picture of other people's lives. Uh, one of the things that I love as a homeowner, I love upkeeping and maintaining my own grass. I'm a lawn care nut and I want to dominate my neighbor's grass and I want that thing to be nitrogen green. Come on, somebody's in the room. I got a witness up in here. And so I have a friend, uh, there's a guy named Rich and he has in-laws, he lives in New York City and his in-laws live in Long Island. So in Long Island they actually have grass, so don't think like high rises, but in the Long Island part of New York, his in-laws live there and in the winter he was driving by and he saw that his uh, his in-law's neighbor had the most beautiful, pristine grass, kind of in the winter. Snow hadn't fallen yet, but it was cold. But man, this guy had like some green grass. And he's like, wow, this is unbelievable. Look at this guy's grass. So he would drive by a couple weeks later, and he saw once again this beautiful grass. He's like, man, this is unbelievable. And so all of a sudden, a little bit of 
covetousness starts to kind of rise up in him for this green grass on Long Island in the winter. And so one day he sees the neighbor, the owner of the one with the nice green grass, and he just pulled over. He says, sir, he's like, can I ask you a question? He said, how do you get your grass that green? And the owner goes, oh, that's fake grass. That's fake grass. And so Rich just kind of drove off. But, but how many times do you and I look at uh, what other people have and it's often illusion? It's like, oh my goodness, like how did they get that? Or how did they do that? Man, they got to go down. What's the secret? The secret is it's fake grass. What's the illusion you're believing? Here's the last one. I'll leave you with this. What are the gifts that you need to acknowledge? What are the things that you actually have and possess that God has given you that you need to acknowledge? God has given us so much, people, provision, health. This is the superpower of gratitude and thanksgiving. When we become a grateful people, we declare spiritual warfare on the spirit of covetousness. The principle that God's trying to instill in the 10th commandment for us today is the principle of contentment. And I wish I could tell you the whole story, but man, Paul, the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two does a masterclass on contentment. Paul knew the power of contentment. In, in Philippians four, he's celebrating and, and thanking this church that he loves so much, the, the Philippian church near and dear to his heart. He's thanking them for the gifts he's given them but he's also exposing a theological truth that is worthy of us grasping and taking hold of. He says, I thank you for your gift. Appreciate y'all journeying with me, but, but there's a secret that I need to let you know about. And he says this in Philippians chapter four. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me because he was in jail at the time. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So they send Epaphroditus and, and this is what Paul says. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, bro. You're in prison. You don't have need? Listen to what he says. Why? Because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. No matter what I have or don't have. And, and so he kind of reads his, uh, his resume to us. He says, I, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Listen, in Philippians chapter 4, to be content is to be content with God's power, God's promise, God's presence, and God's provision. The word here, content, that Paul uses, leave this verse up here. The word here, content, is an interesting word that Paul uses. It's, the, it's, it's translated the word contained. It can be translated as self-sufficient or satisfied. It's interesting that Paul actually borrows a word from his day that the Stoic Greek philosophers used. Now, not to bore anybody, but I think this is important. The Stoics were kind of a Greek subset of Greek philosophers, and they used this word contained, and it was synonymous with this idea of being self-sufficient that the Greek Stoic philosopher of Paul's day, they, would, they bred them within themselves a spirit of independence where they believed that you can get to a point where you don't need anyone or anything, that you wouldn't even have to have an emotional response to the worst things in life. Their aim was to be independent from any kind of help. Their approach to life was, I'm gonna deprive myself of all this stuff around me, it doesn't touch me. That's the, Paul, that's the word that Paul uses here, but that's not what Paul meant. 
What Paul means, Paul's declaration is not that of the Stoics to have self-sufficiency, but Paul was using that word because he was grounded in Christ's sufficiency. That Christ and Christ alone is enough. So contentment, everybody, first and foremost, doesn't come from what we have, it's whom we have, and that's Jesus Christ the Lord for the believer in Jesus Christ. Contentment is grounded in union with Jesus Christ. Christian contentment is the fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the embodiment of the good life. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's the inverse of that? When we have him, we can do anything. But we have to have him. He has you. But church, do you have Jesus? Contentment is believing that you have everything you need because you have Jesus. I shared earlier that we planted a church in 2018. And I had the opportunity to do ministry at other churches, at great churches like this one. But if I can be really honest with you, the first year of our church plant, we had around 60 to 75 people. And I became so discontent that I felt like a failure as a pastor. And what I began to do that first year of our church, I, be I became quickly discontent with the gift that I had with my own congregation. Beautiful, holy, amazing, godly people. And so pride and jealousy begins to rise up in me. And you know what I did? I began to covet my brother's church and other flocks. See, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was despising the beautiful gift that God had given me because it was an incredible privilege and honor to pastor the precious people that God has given me, but I was too busy coveting my brother's flock. Listen, everybody, the seed of contentment grows in the soil of thanksgiving. And so here's the remedy I wanna leave with us. I wanna leave you with one thing, literally and metaphorically, one thing. Everyone say one thing. One thing is a phrase that's important to the Christian life. Jesus said this, he says, one thing you lack, said that to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He explained to a busy Martha when she criticized her sister, Jesus said one thing is needed. In John chapter nine, he said one thing I know to the man who wanted to receive his sight. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called in heavenward in Christ Jesus. Listen, the deep things of the kingdom, everybody, rarely come on the fly, but it's the fruit of pursuing one thing. Soren Kierkegaard says, says a saint, to be a saint is to will one thing. The power and the reality of these verses and of these truths is the radicalness and the narrowness of what God is saying that in order to walk out and live a one thing type of life, we begin to remove ourselves from the busyness and the distraction and the culture that wants to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate because let me just ask, a lot of us have many things, but do you have one thing? Do you have what David says in Psalm chapter 27? He says, one thing 
How do you get to one thing? One thing I ask from the Lord, this is, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Listen, everybody, look up here. The book of Hebrews describes God as a rewarder. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One thing. One thing becomes your primary thing, and when it does, that's when you receive the reward. What's one thing that's worth everything that you would be willing to do anything to take hold of? One thing. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want to pray for us. I just want to ask you a couple of questions. One, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Maybe it, was, maybe it was one of the questions that really did something in your heart. What's the story you're telling yourself? What's the illusion you're believing? And maybe today, God would remind you of how good he is by re just revealing to you the gifts that you've prayed for that he's given to you. Maybe for you, you feel like, man, I, I don't have a passion for the one thing, for Jesus. I, want to, I have a passion for the things that God can give me, but I'm not actually passionate about Jesus. And so maybe for you, your heart today is that you would ask, Lord, Lord, put in me a need for you and a passion for you. So Father, I just pray over your church today. And I thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we just come before you and we repent and we just ask for your forgiveness. God, forgive us for coveting so many things that we don't have and, and we have become negligent in seeing the beauty of the things that we do have. And so God, I pray that you would break the stoniness of our hearts and give us a heart of flesh. God, renew in us a passion for the kingdom of God. You said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. I pray that over your church today, that we'd become a grateful people, a people filled with thanksgiving, freed people who seek joyfully after the things of God. In your name we pray.